Okay, I'm hiding from the sprinklers and the car alarms this time. Let's see if I can get this intro recorded before anything else happens. Hi everybody, Liam here. I'm coming to you today from the shores of Lake Merritt. It's another beautiful morning in Oakland. No barbecue Beckys in sight. And since this is the time of year that lots of people start spending as much time as they can chilling by this beautiful body of water, I thought it would be a good opportunity to drop a Lake Merritt episode. You know, share a little history about this sparkling gem that we all love to look at but would never, ever, ever go swimming in. Just a few quick notes though. First, uh, you guys might remember a few episodes ago, I mentioned that I was thinking about starting to mix in more of my KPFA interviews into the podcast. Those are the interviews I do for the radio. Well, I've decided to go for it. Now, the format of these radio shows is pretty different. The regular podcasts are more narrative-style, produced stories, and they take a ton of time to produce. Sometimes I put more than 100 hours into a single episode. Uh, research, tracking down sources, transcribing, editing, fact-checking, you get it. Whereas with the radio shows, I can make those pretty quick because it's just a straight-up Q&A between me and a guest or two. And so I'm going to be including those Q&As in the podcast feed from now on because people have been asking for them. And, I, I, you know, I love having these conversations. But if you aren't interested, no problem. I'm going to make it easy to identify which kind of episode is which by naming the radio interview episodes like this. EBY Q&A colon and then the show topic. So, for example, this episode is called EBY Q&A Exploring Lake Merritt and Fairyland. Uh, the bottom line is that you'll be seeing a lot more East Bay yesterday in your podcast feed, and I hope you're cool with that. Also, thank you to everyone who's supporting me on Patreon. I recently had a tough break with a grant application that I was really hoping for. It got rejected, but since then, so many listeners have been showing me love, uh, pledging $3 a month, $5 a month, whatever. Every single dollar helps. And to show my appreciation, I'm going to personally thank every single Patreon supporter by name at the end of this episode. So if you want to hear that, stay tuned for the credits. And if you want to help keep this show going, check out eastbayyesterday.com and please hit the donate button. I'm going to be announcing a free walking tour for my Patreon supporters uh, soon and some other fun stuff too. Okay, for today's show, I've got two awesome guests. First, I'll be talking with Constance Taylor from the California Center for Natural History. CCNH is a collective of naturalists who love to get down and dirty in parks and ponds and forests all over the Bay Area. Uh, Constance has been involved in a lot of educational activities around the lake over the years. So yeah, if you want to hear a fun conversation about what Lake Merritt used to look like 10,000 years ago and much, much more, stay tuned. My second guest is CJ Hirschfield. CJ has been the woman in charge of Children's Fairyland for the past 17 years. We'll be chatting about the myths, the legends, and of course, the history of that enchanted amusement park. Want to know if Walt Disney really came to Oakland for inspiration? Stick around to find out. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday Q&A. Here we go. All right, Constance Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today on East Bay Yesterday on KPFA. 
I would love to do a little bit of a thought experiment here. Okay, let's get into a time machine and travel back, I don't know, a thousand years, maybe 10,000 years before colonization. That's the main point. Mm -hmm. What did Lake Merritt used to look like? If you were walking up to Lake Merritt way, way, way back in the day, how would it have looked different than it does today? So when we're talking about Lake Merritt, it's really interesting to think about how Lake Merritt formed. And it was formed at the end of the last ice age when the glaciers were melting and sea level was rising and water was coming further and further inland. So it still blows my mind to think that Lake Merritt is over 10,000 years old, which is insane. That's the end of the Pleistocene, the last ice age. So if we think about the time right before Lake Merritt was born, right before all that water started creeping inland, Roaming what we now call Oakland would have been giant ground sloths the size of school buses. There would have been saber-toothed cats. There would have been American cheetah chasing pronghorn antelope. There would have been grizzly bears. There would have been ancient camels, the camelops. So there was all kinds of stuff happening around Lake Merritt. Lake Merritt was also not a lake. It never has been a lake. It is. It, is, it has been and is a tidal estuary which means that it is an area that has freshwater influence and saltwater influence and tidal influence, but it is protected from the full force of the ocean by being surrounded by land, or mostly surrounded by land. So it would have been really, really muddy because you would have had the high tide coming in and inundating the land and then going out and leaving that land saturated and muddy. You would have had just extraordinary diversity of wildlife because wildlife loves being in the ecotone areas, which is where two or more ecosystems sort of come up against each other. So you would have had the tidal wetlands and you would have had the marshlands, and then you also would have had the oak woodlands once you go further inland. And then if you started going up into the hills, you would have had the redwoods. So there's lots and lots of ecosystems and environments all in one relatively small area. So you would have had a ton of water birds. Lake Merritt was famous for all the water birds that were around. In the written record, we have the Spanish saying that the flocks of birds were so huge they would blot out the sun, which is incredible. I mean, we think about the giant flocks of crows that we see around Lake Merritt today, and we think about the water birds that come in in relative abundance today when they're migrating through for the winter, and that seems like a lot, but I mean, it is definitely a stretch of the imagination to think about how much more life there would have been here, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand years ago. And after colonization, though, after, I should say, after the city of Oakland was established uh, around 1852, I believe, things started changing pretty dramatically around Lake Merritt. One thing I read is that Oakland's first mayor, Horace Carpentier, built a bridge going from what was then Oakland to the to east of the lake, which then was a different town called Brooklyn, and that he would charge people a toll just, you know, to save yeah. them the trip all the way around totally. the lake. So right away, people realized, people started thinking, I should say, how to, how to profit off the lake mm-hmm. and how to sort of modify it towards the... Uh, desires of, of what the people who, who founded the city of Oakland wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. What were some of the other changes that started happening to Lake around, you know, the 1850s, 1860s, besides this uh, notorious toll bridge? 
the 18, the late 1800s was the City Beautiful movement, and that was this whole school of thought that said, when we have beautiful municipal areas, people will behave better, and people will be more kind to their fellow citizens because we'll all be morally and spiritually uplifted by these beautiful places. And so Lake Merritt and the area, the parklands around the area certainly were physically influenced by that school of thought in architecture. And so you have all of these different plants being planted there uh, because people wanted to be reminded of all the different places where they were from because you had lots of people coming in from all over the country, all over the world. So you're saying a lot of non-native plants? Absolutely, yes. Lots of non-native plants, for sure. You also would have had the um, retaining wall being built around Lake Merritt. That would have locked it into its shape. Otherwise, it would have been sort of a little bit more amorphous. There wouldn't have been that little rock wall around the entire perimeter that I'm sure we've all seen. In the 1800s, Oakland is just growing by leaps and bounds. The population is exploding. It's kind of surprising that Lake Merritt was protected, that it's not completely encircled right to the waterfront with giant mansions or villas like a lot of bodies of water are in, in other parts of the world. So yeah. how, did, how did all this come about? Well, it is a pretty interesting story. The story that I have heard is that Samuel Merritt, who was the mayor of Oakland at the time, was living near Lake Merritt. And things were getting busier and busier, like you were saying. More and more people were moving to the area. Uh, but it was still more or less relatively pastoral. And there were lots of delicious water birds and other animals living around Lake Merritt that were just, you know, looking so nice for the dinner table. So people would come down to Lake Merritt to go hunting. And the story that I've heard is that Mayor Merritt's neighbor's cow was shot accidentally by a stray bullet because we're talking about shotguns, which are, we have, you know, very low accuracy. So there would just be bullets kind of flying everywhere. And, you know, Mayor Merritt kind of got his hackles up about his neighbor's cow being shot. But then Mayor Merritt himself got a bullet through his bedroom window. And that's when he said, all right, that's enough. Somebody's going to get killed if we don't put a stop to this. And then I'm going to have to deal with it because I'm the mayor. And so he decided to turn Lake Merritt into a wildlife refuge so no hunting could happen. So the impetus for turning Lake Merritt into the wildlife refuge was more to protect humans than it was to protect birds. I know one bird that people, a lot of people probably wish wasn't protected was the Canada goose, the Canada geese that are so populous around Lake Merritt. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I know that they are frustrating for some people who just want to have a nice picnic and, you know, they put their blanket down and oops, there happens to be bird poop everywhere. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting story. So the very first naturalist at Lake Merritt was Paul Cavell. And he was, you know, a legendary guy. People loved him. He did so much to educate people about the nature and the ecology and environment in Oakland and around Lake Merritt. And he is also supposedly the person who introduced the Canada geese to Lake Merritt because, hey. So he's the guy we should blame. <laughs> he did lots of other stuff too. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't help that people have been feeding them for decades either. Uh, but... When he brought these Canada Goose to Lake Merritt, it was like that was what you did as a self-respecting city. You had to have these beautiful urban geese that were all the rage. And so he brought nine Canada Geese to Lake Merritt, 
And keep in mind, there were also many captive animals at Lake Merritt as well. It used to be a wildlife rehab center. There used to be lots of animals in cages all around the Rotary Nature Center and all around sort of the area where the geodesic dome is. Um, when you see those hexagonal planters, those, those are all cage bases. There used to be captive animals held 24-7 around Lake Merritt. But um, that was a place where people went to see animals, and they wanted to see exotic animals. They wanted to see whoever they could. It was like a little mini zoo. And so he brought these nine Canada geese down, and then it all kind of escalated from there. So speaking of the geodesic dome that you just mentioned, that has kind of an interesting historical distinction as well, I believe. Can you tell me the story about the, the dome, who built it, and what it was used for? Sure. So it was inspired by R. Buckminster Fuller. He had come to UC Berkeley and given a talk at the School of Engineering, and some of the students were inspired by what they heard. And apparently, my understanding is William Penn Mott, who at the time I think was the director of Oakland Parks, was also there, and he was also very inspired. And so they decided that they wanted to build one of these somewhere. And since William Penn Mott was working with the Oakland Parks Department, he knew about Lake Merritt, he knew that there was wildlife rehabilitation happening, he knew that sometimes animals needed a place to rest, and so they were thinking, hey, it would be cool if we had a freestanding dome for birds that were being rehabilitated. That way they could fly around in a cage, but not have to worry about smashing into support beams. I believe it was the largest geodesic dome built at the time. Until I, I heard that it was the first geodesic dome on the West Coast. I, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Yeah, it was definitely um, a new structure that people hadn't really seen before. And there was quite a lot of hoopla. I, I've heard that Kaiser donated the metal. Yes, I've heard that as well. Also, yes. And now, you know, it's, it's still standing. Nobody's really figured out what to do with it since then. Um, well, I heard that one of the problems was that sometimes rats would get in and attack the birds that were recovering. There are so many rats in that geodesic dome, yes. <laughs> uh, as long as we're talking about rats, yes. is there anything you can say about the rats? Are the rats native? Should we embrace them as native species or are they an invader? They are, as far as I am aware, they are primarily Norway rats, which are a European rat that I believe came over with the Spanish and all of the traveling that was happening out to the West Coast over many hundreds of years. So I have never heard of native rats, which would be like our dusky-footed wood rat, being found around Lake Merritt. So to my knowledge, they are all non-native rats around Lake Merritt. Mm. Another case of the non-natives displacing mm. the natives. Uh, well, actually, you know what, though? Those rats are actually great food for all of the raptors and birds of prey we have around. So uh, one big issue around, you know, just any urban area, especially an area that also has lots of wildlife and is in very close proximity to urban areas is people using rat poison. Because those rats are going and eating the poison and then going right back out to run around in the world. And we have a lot of birds of prey around Lake Merritt. And they are eating those rats and ingesting poison. So um, if you live around Lake Merritt or really anywhere, using rat poison is not a good idea because it does affect other wildlife. 
Yeah, we don't want hawks and owls and all the other lovely birds of prey dropping dead from eating bad rats. Exactly. So as long as we're kind of on the north side of the lake here, there's another feature that I wanted to ask you about, the bird islands. Can you tell me a little bit about when they were built and uh, what purpose they serve and, and what lives out there? So the first bird island was built in 1925 by Mayor John Davies, who was Oakland's 30th mayor. And it was built because people loved the birds around Lake Merritt. These birds are a big deal. People had bird festivals out at Lake Merritt. If you go to the Oakland History Room and go through the newspapers, you can see these pictures of all these little girls in white dresses doing like dances to honor the birds. And it was a big festival and celebration that people had. And the birds were an attraction at Lake Merritt. People would travel to see the birds at Lake Merritt. And so Mayor Davies decided that he wanted to make his mark on the city, similar to how Samuel Merritt had left his mark on the city and wanted to help contribute to the legacy at Lake Merritt. The island was actually called Davies Folly by his political opponents, but it turned out to be really, really popular both for the birds and for people. So the rest of the islands were built by... Paul Cavell, who, like I said, was the first naturalist at Lake Merritt, and he also installed freshwater ponds on each of the islands so the birds would have something to drink. We've been kind of speaking generally about birds. Can you talk about some of the species that live out on those islands? So the birds who take full advantage of the islands are, I would say, the birds that nest there. So the most obvious ones are the ones in the trees, because we can see them from the shore, and those are the double-crested cormorants, the snowy egrets, and the great blue herons. So when you are looking at the trees that look all kind of scraggly and dead on the islands, and they have those big old masses of sticks in them, it's likely you are looking at the double-crested cormorant nests, and they've been nesting there for a really long time. My understanding is that a number of years ago, maybe going back 10 years or so, those trees actually had more nesting snowy egrets and great blue herons and the black-crowned night herons. But when the cormorants started coming over, something, I, I think for a while they were all nesting together, but after a while the cormorants kind of took over. And I suspect that has something to do with the way that cormorants change the trees that they're living in when they decide to nest in trees. So cormorants poop a lot, and they like to nest in really dense colonies. And so cormorants will poop and poop and poop, and their poop will cover the leaves and prevent the tree from photosynthesizing, which will eventually kill the tree. And so you have a dead tree with no leaves, or a tree that's not doing very well at least, and you have very exposed nests and nesting colonies. Now, if anybody is familiar with the rookery of black-crowned night herons and snowy egrets that used to be down by the post office on 14th, those were all pretty darn leafy trees. And they had lots of herons and egrets nesting in them, but they weren't necessarily at the same densities of the cormorants. Um, the suspicion or the theory is that the cormorants kind of denuded the trees and created a lot less cover for other birds. And so the other birds left and decided to nest somewhere else. You still do have um, the black-crowned night herons and the snowy egrets nesting in the shrubs, the lower shrubs on the islands. And I do not know if there are other birds that nest there. I'm sure there are. 
but I just don't know which ones commonly nest there since people are not allowed out on the islands. I like to call them the Farallons of Lake Merritt. <laughs> That's hilarious. Going to uh, gonna start trying to spread that yeah. terminology. <laughs> okay, so kind of a big picture question here. Can you tell me about the process of reconnecting Lake Merritt to the bay? How long has that been going on, and what are the benefits to having that tidal flow going back and forth between the lake and the bay? So Measure DD was a bond measure that was created to address exactly what you're talking about. So improving the health of Lake Merritt. Lake Merritt is a naturally anaerobic environment, which means that it tends to get a little stinky because there's not a whole lot of oxygen in the mud. It's also salt water. And so all of these things, marshes and sloughs and estuaries, they do tend to be a little stinky because there's just a lot of like decaying plant material in there. And especially an estuary like Lake Merritt, where it's it's got a narrow outlet to the bay and so that narrow outlet kind of acts like a a straw you know and the if the straw gets narrower and narrower then you're going to have less and less flushing in and out of the bay so you just had a lot of stuff getting stuck in lake merritt so measure dd was a way to try to improve the oxygen levels in the water and also to improve the smell and the habitat for all of the lake creatures the estuary creatures, I should say. So it was a bond that was passed in 2002 with an 88% approval vote, which is pretty incredible. People love the lake. It's true, they do, and, and with good reason. And it was $196 million, and it was for park beautification and waterway health. So what measure DD did, one of the big things, was all the construction at the south end of the lake by Laney. And it was construction to widen the channel to try to increase the dimension of that straw that's sucking water in and out of the lake from the bay or the estuary from the bay. And that uh, was done to increase tidal flushing. So hopefully with the increased tidal flushing over a period of time, there'll be, you know, more turnover in the water, more oxygen getting into the water and improve the estuary health in general. I know one thing that's happened is that animals, creatures from the bay have been coming back into Lake Merritt, whereas, you know, previously they weren't able to do that because of the dam that was in the way. Uh, I've seen bat rays, living and dead. I actually saw a seal swimming underneath Whoa. that bridge there, and I actually got a video of it. Wow. So it's pretty, pretty crazy. I'm wondering, is it good for those animals to be swimming in the lake? Are they lost? It, should we be happy when we see a seal or a bat ray in the lake, or should we be worried? That's a great question. So, uh, gosh, I think it was about three or four years ago, there was a big rainstorm after a drought, and there were tons of dead bat rays showing up on the shores of Lake Merritt, and we couldn't really figure out why. And the theory is that the lake water had gotten more and more saline over, you know, a relatively gradual period of time. Um, I do remember doing a salinity test of the water around that time, and it hadn't rained for ages, and we tested the salinity, and it was about 32 parts per million, if I recall correctly, and that is the salinity of ocean water. 
And then we had a huge rain event a couple days later and we tested the salinity again and it was almost zero. So there was a massive change in salinity that can happen if there hasn't been any rain and then all of a sudden we get tons and tons of fresh water flooding into the lake from that Glen Echo watershed. Because remember, we've got 62 storm drains and seven square acres, seven square miles, I'm sorry, that drain into Lake Merritt. So that's a lot of fresh water all at once. And so it's thought that maybe that drastic change of salinity was really hard on the systems of the larger bat rays. And maybe that's why they died. To my knowledge, it's never really been, you know, there's never been any definitive answer to why there were so many bat rays that died. I remember reading an article a couple of years ago in the Oakland Tribune about during an effort to dredge the bottom of the lake to clean out trash and things that had accumulated at the bottom, uh, all kinds of weird stuff was dug up, uh, guns that people had thrown in the lake. Uh, the weirdest thing I remember was that they found a little coffin with a hamster in it. So someone, you know, gave their wow. hamster a, a aquatic, a yeah, burial yeah. at sea, exactly. Nice. So I'm wondering Classy. if if somebody was crazy enough to put on scuba gear and they had a light and they were swimming along the bottom of Lake Merritt, what would it look like down there? What would they see? Probably a lot of rocks. It would probably be really hard to see, period. There's a lot of silt down there. I would imagine, gosh, I feel like you would probably find lots of scooters, maybe. What about like mussels or other shellfish, stuff oh, like that? Definitely a lot of mussels, for sure. Um, there are both native and introduced mussels in Lake Merritt. Uh, it's a type of blue mussel, and my understanding is they're relatively difficult to tell apart. So I don't think, you know, you might not have the greatest luck trying to separate the non-native from the native, but they are edible. They are actually similar to the blue mussels that you can buy in the grocery store in the frozen seafood section. I would not recommend eating any filter feeders that come out of Lake Merritt because they are, you know, they're on the front line of filtering all the goo that comes into the lake on a daily basis. Yeah, so if Lake Chalet has a uh, local mussel special, might want to think twice about that one. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. Uh, let's see. You know, I want to make sure we talk about the BioBlitz that's happening. Mm. What is the BioBlitz? What can it tell us about the history and the nature of the lake? And when is it happening? Thanks for asking. The first BioBlitz was in 2014. And there were 323 species recorded over the course of just like four or five hours. Who was recording them? It was people who decided to come to the BioBlitz, so members of the public. These were not people, I was there, I don't really have any specialized information, I'm not a scientist. It was just kind of folks who are curious about learning about Lake Merritt, who are interested in helping document the biodiversity around Lake Merritt. That was really fun because we were able to get some kind of present day baseline for what was going on. And there are other surveys as well that have been done around Lake Merritt for sure, but those surveys are a little bit less accessible to the public. All of the results from the 2014 BioBlitz are still on the website iNaturalist. That is the website we use to record all the information. And we're gonna have another one in 2019, April 27th, 2019. This is all part of the City Nature Challenge that is organized by the California Academy of Sciences. And bioblitzes are really cool because they give us a snapshot of biodiversity. So what it is, is you go out with your smartphone or your camera 
and you take pictures of all the different organisms that you can find. That's spiders, that's trees, that's flowers, that's different types of grass, whatever. As long, you do not have to know what it is you are taking a picture of, you just have to take a good picture. And then you upload your observations to iNaturalist, and either you can identify them or the community in iNaturalist will help you identify it. It's a crowdsourced identification and then we get an idea of who's living around, has anything changed, how are things changing. I love it. Citizen scientists out uh, on patrol. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we could just keep talking about Lake Merritt all day, but uh, I think we've run out of time. For people who want to check out California Center for Natural History or attend the BioBlitz, can you tell folks where to find information about that? Yes, you can find it on the website. It is calnature.org. Constance Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Once again, thanks to Constance Taylor from California Center for Natural History for sharing her vast knowledge of Lake Merritt and all its critters with us. If you have any follow-up questions for Constance, go to the Lake Merritt BioBlitz on April 27th also, real quick, before I jump into the next segment, I want to give a shout out to another story about Lake Merritt. Uh, back in the 1980s and 90s, there used to be a celebration that a lot of people have fond memories of. It was called Festival at the Lake. Pretty recently, KQED's Sandia Dirks did a really great story about the history of Festival at the Lake. Uh, the title of that piece was called When Oakland Was a Chocolate City. I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out, which I highly recommend. Okay, coming up next, all of your questions about children's fairyland will be answered because I'm going to be talking with longtime executive director CJ Hirschfield. Stay tuned. All right, I'm here with CJ Hirschfield, who has been the executive director of Children's Fairyland in Oakland for 17 years. CJ is going to be leaving Fairyland in a few months, and so I thought this would be the perfect time to interview her. Ever since I started this podcast three years ago, folks have been asking me to do an episode about Fairyland, and so I'm finally here. And I'm actually going to do something kind of unusual today. We've never done this before, but I'm turning over the reins of the show, so to speak, to you, the listeners. The other day on social media, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, I asked folks, if you had any questions about Fairyland, anything you were curious about, and I was absolutely overwhelmed with responses. I have so many questions here, and I'm going to try to get to all of them. But first, I'm going to ask one question of my own. CJ, can you just describe what Fairyland looks like and what it is for people that might not have been here? Children's Fairyland, I tell people, is a state of mind, uh, but it's actually a physical place as well. We have about eight acres in the heart of downtown Oakland, right on the shores of Lake Merritt, beautifully landscaped. We have about 27 sets that kids can run around in, uh, climb through, jump on. We've got four little little kid-sized rides. We've got over 20 gentle animals. We've got a an historic puppet theater, which I'm sure people will ask questions about. And so we've got a lot going on at any given time. Okay, so starting off with the listeners' questions, I've got a couple related questions here. First from Christine Valenza. 
who's curious about the early attractions. How were they designed and created? So can you tell us a little bit about the origin of the park? What was the impetus for creating this magical place? Okay, well, for folks who don't know, this is the first storybook theme park in America. So many followed, but we were the first. It was a post-war world we were living in, and the Lake Merritt Breakfast Club, which still meets in Oakland every Thursday morning at 7 o'clock, had two members who really were in part of the instigation here. Uh, they thought there should be a place for little kids. Now, Arthur Navlet of Navlet Nurseries, he and his wife had no children, but they went to Belle Isle Zoo in Detroit which had small, kid-sized structures, little houses and such. And he came back to Oakland and to the Breakfast Club and said, we need to have something like this for the kids in Oakland. Now, he had the idea, but the political juice came from William Penmont Jr., who at the time was the head of the Parks Department. He was superintendent. And so together, they raised the money to come up with this prototype. Now, the architect, Everett, um, I've got a great story about that. He went into, William Penmont asked him to come up with a little design for a little house just to see if Everett could do it. So Everett came into his office and had a design for a house, and it was very cute. It was a cottage, and William Penmont said, yeah, you know what? I'm thinking of something a little a little wackier, something that has no straight lines. And Everett was so upset that he took a baseball bat and smashed it and left. And Mott thought he, that was the last he'd seen of uh, Everett. Uh, that wasn't the case. Everett came back with an altered design in which the house had slopes and angles and looked a little, little um, more whimsical. And at that point, Mott said, that's it. And those were some of the first structures at the Beatrix Potter part of the park, for those of you who know the park. The next question comes from Deanna Don Tibbs, and this is sort of related to the current renaissance that Children's Fairyland has been uh, undergoing for the last few years. She says that since she started going there uh, about 15 years ago, there have been noticeable improvements to the park overall and the upkeep. I'm curious about what happened. So you've been running Fairyland that whole time. What has happened since you've taken over the park? Well, right before my time, it was a real turning point at Children's Fairyland. The city was running out of money for it. And so that's when I was taking my daughter, who's now 28, to the park. And you could tell it was super cool, but it was very run down. So it was a turning point because the city was saying, I don't know, should we pave over this like so many other of these uh, storybook theme parks? And the city went crazy, thankfully, and said, no, we've got to figure out a way to save it and make it better. So what they did was came up with a, a public-private kind of partnership so that a nonprofit organization was created that would then operate the park even though the city still ran it, I mean, still owned it. So uh, my predecessor did a lot of work. We were then freed up to be part of bond measures and to apply for money from charitable foundations, corporations, individuals, and little by little we did bring the park back. This next set of questions, uh, I think it's probably something that you get asked about quite a bit. I know people are looking forward to getting getting this mystery solved. And uh, I've got a few related related queries here from uh, Fela Kuchi and Funky Squash and Nicole Roulette. And they are all curious about the Disney connection. They're wondering if it's true that Walt Disney was inspired to build Disneyland by visiting Fairyland. Did he visit here? How long did he visit for? And did he did Walt Disney poach anyone from Fairyland to work for him? Okay, the definitive answer about Walt Disney. 
As I mentioned, Fairyland was created and opened in 1950. Uh, Walt Disney did come here. Were we his only inspiration? No. He went to Tivoli Gardens uh, in Europe and Copenhagen uh, and other places, but he definitely spent time here. He walked around. It was actually on Easter. I don't remember exactly what year. And he was very impressed with what he saw. There's documentation of that. He did hire away our first executive director and our puppeteer who worked for him uh, when he opened, after he opened Disneyland five years after we opened in 1955. They worked for him for many, many years. So, you know, we've forgiven the Disney organization uh, over time. But we were clearly uh, an inspiration. Uh, I like to tell people he went the uh, commercial route. We stayed non-commercial and we're all friends. Well, if you guys uh, had gone the commercial route, maybe you don't Star Wars by now. <laughs> you know, I've got to tell you, you can laugh about that, but I really think that parents, and the reason we've seen uh, over a doubling of the uh, attendance at the park over the years is that I think parents really appreciate the fact that we are not non-commercial, we're not trying to sell anything, and the fact that we are no-tech, not just low-tech, we are no-tech, no screens. And I think studies have borne out in the 90s the fact, uh, the importance of imaginative play for little kids, the, the age that we serve, uh, toddlers and such, the importance of imaginative play in terms of kids' future success in school and in life. Well, I'm glad that you guys stayed small and Oakland-oriented as well, because I visited Orlando once when I was a kid, and I'm, I would be horrified to think of Lake Merritt looking like, uh, you know, the area surrounding Epcot Center there in Orlando. So thank you for, for keeping it... Um, intimate and, and Oakland-oriented. Another question here coming from Jose Shag Dominguez, and he is wondering about Frank Oz. He said that he read that Frank Oz got his puppeteering start at Children's Fairyland. Is this true? And in answering this question, can you also tell people who Frank Oz is? Okay, well, a young Frank Osnowitz, as he was uh, known at that time, was an apprentice as a teenager here in uh, Children's Fairyland's Puppet Theater. His parents were puppeteers in Europe and had to flee during the war, uh, so they ended up settling in Oakland. So Frank was an apprentice here. He was very good at what he did. And when he was, I believe, once he graduated high school, he was quickly hired on by Jim Henson, and went on to great things, including uh, Yoda, the voice of Yoda, Miss Piggy, etc., and later went on to become a, a well-known director as well. So yes, he did get his start here at Children's Fairyland in our puppet theater, which is the longest continuously running puppet theater in America. Wow, incredible. So without Fairyland, there might not have been a Yoda, which is which is hard to imagine. Such a... Sad that would be. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, we've got a question here from Pat and Patty, and they would like to hear about Fairyland's Black Santa tradition. Can you talk a little bit about the Black Santa tradition? I can. It's going to make me a little sad, though. Um, uh, We have had a Black Santa for literally decades. Ron Zeno was our first Black Santa. Ron ran something called Safe Exchange, which uh, brought together a parent and a kid from... um, a situation that had been filled with trauma. And we would allow Ron to bring the family here for free just because, as Ron once told me, and it changed my whole view of children's fairyland, that he asked me, are you aware of the fact that fairyland is a therapeutic environment? 
And I'll talk about that later if you want to. But Ron was a very special human being, very warm, bigger than life. He had uh, an FM velvety voice that we used uh, as audio. Uh, We used him as a character in a number of our uh, puppet shows. But Ron uh, wanted to be Santa. And Ron was our Santa for well over 20 years. And uh, when he passed away, we had someone else who had been here who'd filled in for Ron occasionally and who was a volunteer. So when Ron passed away, uh, Eric came on board and uh, it just seemed so natural. And it's very interesting because people, uh, we found people come from very far away to see a black Santa. For us, it's just been something that both Eric and Ron had the warmth that we really needed. It's, you know, I've I've just got to say, for those of us who were lucky enough to know Ron, he just exuded this incredible warmth and compassion, and that's how we saw Santa. Yeah, you know, I've posted some um, photos of Ron on East Bay yesterday's uh, Instagram page and Facebook page in memorial of him around Christmas time. And people just share their memories and people just have such fond memories of coming here as, as children and seeing, you know, a Santa that looked like them. And people are just so uh, proud of that being an, an Oakland tradition that so many people have connected with over the years. So it's good to get a little bit of that backstory. I'm going to throw a few kind of related questions at you here, all related to the famous keys. So the keys, uh, Corrine Smith wants to know, who came up with the idea? Do they still have them? I'd love to see an exhibit of all the keys. Torch Bearer of Spring wants to know, how many different colored keys were there? And Stephanie Fishkin Dark wants to know, the music that plays or played when I was a kid, when you turn the key, was it made for Fairyland or was it taken from something else? So... Lots of questions about the keys there. Can you can you touch on some of those? Uh, well, let's let's begin at the beginning. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Bruce Sedley. For people who've been around for a long time, he was Sir Sedley on television. So he had a television show, as was the thing in the fifties, where you would have someone who would introduce cartoons. So Bruce Sedley was that person, and Bruce is the person who came up with the idea for the storybook boxes that are activated by the keys, and as the uh, person who wrote in says, there's music or there's a story and uh, that encourages interactivity. So Bruce thought it would be a good idea once he created the, the guts of the box and the key, which is a, a plastic key, that he would do a little cross-promotion, cross-marketing. So on his television show, he would say, hey, I'm going to be down at Fairyland on Saturday come on down. And so, of course, people would be encouraged to buy the keys and all of that. Well, Bruce Bruce then went on to invent the electronic keys that you see now in hotels. And Bruce uh, ended up moving to Hong Kong, where he was very successful. He had a home in Hawaii as well. But I'll tell you, when Bruce would come back to Oakland, he would be a rock star here at Fairyland. I mean, people would be following him around. He got such a kick out of Fairyland and about the fact that people still love and collect um, these magic keys. And I think that it represents uh, happy childhood memories to folks because, boy, oh, boy, are people into them. They're very active traders on East Bay. And to my surprise, not anymore, but there are many, many people in Oakland who have tattoos of the magic key. And again, it symbolizes a happy childhood is what I think. We order them in batches of 10,000, 
And we've got an artist, our resident kind of head of art and restoration. She's the one who picks the colors. So we try to vary them. I actually, for our members today, we decided on a new color for uh, the special member keys, which is kind of a see-through green. But we've got one collector named Leela who's got, uh, I mean, she buys and trades. And at one point we had a a glow-in-the-dark key, a limited edition. And she bought a lot of them, and she ended up saying that you can see my room from space, (laughs) which I love because she has so many of these glow-in-the-dark magic keys. Okay, I'm going to have to follow up with the with your key answer with one of my own questions. For your leaving Fairyland retirement party, are you going to get a key tattoo, CJ? <laughs> Stay tuned. Okay, we'll see about that. This next question is a little bit of a mystery. It comes from a Twitter user by the name of Trash Knight Heron, a.k.a. Hyphy Republic. And he says that he has memories of going into the old woman who lives in the shoe circa 1973, 1975. But he's been told since then that kids were never allowed into the old woman who lives in the shoe. So he's wondering, is his childhood memories of going into the old woman who lives in the shoe false? Did he imagine this? Was he hallucinating? Was this, uh, you know, he was a child and he was overwhelmed and, and these memories were implanted in his brain somehow by fantasizing about it? What's the story with the old woman in the shoe? Were kids ever allowed? to go in there or could it could it have been possible that a young hyphy republic snuck into the old woman in the shoe well hyphy republic if you were taking tickets back in the day at children's fairyland you might have been in the shoe but that's the only way you would have been in the shoe it's hard for me to imagine um, but there's a little airless room in there and that used to be uh, the main entrance to the park you would have to go through the shoe and there was a ticket taker there who would take your tickets. But it was airless, it was small, it was claustrophobic. So unless you took tickets, uh, you wouldn't have been in there. But now it has been moved and it is still in our plaza outside of Fairyland. And trust me, kids and adults still walk through it to get to Fairyland, but it is no longer the admissions gate. And I've got to say the designers designed it so that I'm trying to remember their exact words, so that uh, an adult would have to stoop over to go through the shoe, suggesting that this is not, they're entering a place that's not for them. And the kids would walk proudly through. So we are happy to have the shoe still there because it is an icon of the park. That answer leads into a question that I got from quite a few people. Twitter user Chronicles of Azu, uh, also uh, well-known East Bay writer by the name of Azusena Rasilia, wonderful writer, highly recommend checking her out. She says, can Fairyland sometimes open for grown folks without kids who also don't want to mingle with the young crowd at Fairyland for grown-ups party? And she's, she's only one of quite a few people who want to know, can we get a little more Fairyland for adults? Can, can we have some more evenings or day parties where Fairyland for grown-ups is a thing? You all need to follow us on Facebook, people. We have adult events at night, and they are pretty magical. We do, the biggest one we do is in partnership with Oaklandish. It's called Fairyland for Grownups. It's typically in mid-August, so stay tuned for that. One that I love as well is called Drawn Together, and it's an arts event, a community building event. And we have about over 40 
artists, some of them very well known, who give up their time and art for an event at night so you can have a glass of wine, wander around, talk to the artists, and they are making, creating that night site-specific art, which then gets sold off, not auctioned, as a flat rate. So you can get some amazing art for an incredibly low amount of money. That's a fun event. And we do weddings. Um, my own daughter is getting married in June at Children's Fairyland for a whimsical wedding, but we definitely do events in the evening for adults. Well, congratulations uh, to your daughter. That sounds like it's going to be quite a fun wedding. Uh, let's see. We've got another question from a local writer. This one is from Laura Atkins, who is the author of some great children's books like uh, Fred Korematsu Speaks Up and Biddy Mason Speaks Up. Laura says that she loves the Turn the Page Festival and is curious to know about Fairyland's connections to books over time. And she also just wants to throw in that Fairyland is one of her favorite places. Bless you. Um, yes, this Turn the Page event for that features local children's book authors and illustrators is so close to our heart because we've always been about early childhood literacy. That's who we are. So we have a reading room. We now have toddler story time every Friday, twice on Fridays. And this book festival is just, it's our heart. And we're going to be premiering a new library card, Oakland library card, that's going to blow people's minds. So books and reading and storytelling is what we are all about, as well as diversity. So we actually hire part-time, very part-time, two children's librarians who've curated our reading room to ensure that it is as culturally diverse as it can be. And we're very proud of that. But thank you for, for noticing, because we are all about the reading. I like this next question because it's very random. It comes from a follower, a fan, a listener named Underbs. And Underbs says, a random woman on BART said that they have live seals that you could feed fish to, or that they had live seals that you could feed fish to. Curious. So was there ever live seals here that you could feed fish to? Was the woman on BART right? <laughs> yes, she was. There are all kinds of crazy animals here that we no longer have. Um, Yes, there were seals who had been injured. One one was blind, I understand. And we, we had a fish shack. It's now used for other purposes. But uh, someone would be in there cutting up fish and selling it so that you could feed it to the seals. Um, what I have heard is that at a certain point, they ended up making too much noise. And the people in uh, apartments near Fairyland uh, started complaining. So we no longer have, have seals. We have a theater there instead. We also had alle- seals do tend to bark. <laughs> they do. We I can't believe it, but uh, what what could go wrong when you have alligators and toddlers in the same place? But hmm. <laughs> but we did. We also had monkeys that people have told me stories about on Play Island that would leave Play Island and run amok, grabbing people's food and on Grand Avenue as well. So bring them back. <laughs> so we no longer have the monkeys either, but we have uh, many, many animals, uh, no carnivores, thankfully, uh, I would say, but, you know, many goats, many horses, many uh, sheep, all of that. But yes, we did used to have seals, and a lot of people remember that fondly. Oh, my gosh. That's great. So uh, I should add that another listener named Nina Lindsay also asked about the live animals and, and mentioned that the live animals are a special part of making the magic happen at Fairyland. So a lot of animal fans out there. Let's see. Next question. We, what, ooh, this one's we're, we're getting a little darker here. Fairyland after dark. 
Maeve, Maeve Joe wants to know, is it haunted? And kind of a kind of a very grim follow-up here. She says, How many people have died there? Hopefully the answer is none, but is it haunted? Has there ever been a tragedy at Fairyland? Oh boy. Well, um, there are some people I know who believe that the puppet theater, and by the way, that's where we're doing this interview, that the puppet theater is haunted. Uh, I've never seen or heard anything to suggest that, but there are people who believe that. In terms of people dying here, uh, not that I know of, but I will say that uh, according to Randall Metz, our resident historian and master puppeteer, William Penn Mott Jr., whom I mentioned, who was the driving force behind the creation of Children's Fairyland and the zoo, I might add, uh, apparently uh, came here one day and wandered around and apparently passed away, I believe, that same day afterwards. So he wanted to come back one more time. For a lot of people, I'm sure spending your last day at Fairyland would be a a nice way to exit the earth with, with happy memories in your heart. Somewhat related, but a little bit less grim. Michelle Kisherer wants to know what's the weirdest thing that's happened at Children's Fairyland. You know, that's that's hard to say because how do you define weird? There is never a dull moment, I will tell you that. And weird, I don't know how to define weird. I will say that it was pretty funny one day when uh, we had someone come running in and say, oh my gosh, your goats are in the tree. And we went running out, and sure enough, the goats had climbed a tree. But if you Google goats and trees, it's a thing. And they were very sure-footed. And, oh, my gosh, uh, people went crazy because uh, (laughs) that's just what they do. Uh, The tree, unfortunately, died, uh, so they're no longer up in trees. But that, that... I, that counted as kind of weird to me. It was kind of fun. So the ghost just climbed up there? And how did you get them down? Well, it's funny. It's not like a cat in a tree. And I'm serious. <laughs> Once we Googled it, it's like, it's a thing. Um, they do it. They climb trees. And they were so sure-footed, I couldn't. I had to close my eyes because I thought they would fall down. Never. They just went up and down the tree. Wow. I was in um, Zion National Park a couple years ago, and I saw these mountain goats running up what appeared to be almost like sheer cliffs, but I've never seen a goat climb a tree before. So that's... In the heart of downtown Oakland. <laughs> Don't yeah. you love it? Yeah, definitely. I have another, I have another w- kind of weird one. Please. Um, so Popo the Clown was a clown who was our kind of mascot and, uh, you know, in-house clown for many decades. And apparently there was a museum, a Ringling Brothers Museum in Connecticut, and they had a wax figure of Popo there. Well, when the museum was closed down, there was a local person here who actually used to be a riot operator many, many decades ago. He met his wife here. He loves Fairyland, and he purchased the Popo wax figure, and for our 60th anniversary, he brought it here and sat with it so no one would steal it. And just, you know, told the story of Popo. So, and apparently it lives in his living room, in his house. I should add that B.H. McCarthy was asking about Popo the Clown. So there you go, uh, B.H. McCarthy. Your, your Popo the Clown question is uh, answered. This next one is sort of a question slash suggestion. It comes from Taline Nesse, niece. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But Taline says... Can they have a permanent display of Fairyland photos from then and now? My mom went there in the 50s. I went there as a kid in the 70s, and now I'm taking my daughter. It's my happy place. I'd love to see a permanent exhibit of families at Fairyland over the decades. 
Oh, I, you know, there's nothing we love more than to see different generations, particularly coming together over the holidays and coming to Fairyland. Um, I will tell you that we had uh, were recently presented with an incredible opportunity, which we jumped on, which is to have two huge display cases at the Oakland Airport in Terminal 1 right before you get to security. So what we've done is... We're, we've put together a then, Fairyland Then and Now display, which should be going up within a month or so. So check it out, because I think you all have fun looking at how we used to be and how we are now. That makes actually going to the airport sound kind of exciting and, and entertaining, so I'm sure people will appreciate that. Uh, we've got a couple of questions related to the train. These are from Chris Murray and Scouter Irv, and they want to know, why doesn't the Jolly Trolley go out of the park and make a loop by the entrance anymore? And also, there was a train that looped from the boathouse parking area to Fairyland. Is this the same train that we see behind the fence near the band shell? Will it ever run again? Good question. There are two trains associated with Fairyland. One is the Jolly Trolley. And yes, that did used to go outside of our ferry gates when... <clears throat> there was a, a, a special charge to go on that ride. It was created by a former uh, policeman back in the day in Oakland, and he would uh, take the money. And what happened was the ride was so long that it wasn't maximizing the income, and so they brought it inside the park, and it's free with admission now. Now, the other train uh, is the Lakeside Lark, and that is the one that used to go through Lakeside Park and pick people up and bring them back. We can't do that anymore. It just uh, wouldn't work, and it, it has its issues uh, as a train. Um, the only time we take the Lark out now, it's one of my favorite uh, events of the year. She's in one parade, and that is the Pride Parade, which we have historically led along with our family coalition. So we've got to work. You know, she's kind of old and tired, and we cross our fingers when she runs. But uh, we're so happy to see the Lakeside Lark filled with about 40 different kids leading the Pride Parade in Oakland. Before we get to the next question, I just want to add something for the listeners who may be hearing some small voices in the background of this conversation. Just so you guys know, uh, CJ and I are actually doing this interview backstage at the Puppet Theater in Children's Fairyland, and I think the puppet show is getting ready to start pretty soon. So we'll try to get to another question or two, but uh, if you hear some shrieking and giggling in the background, it's because there's kids just on the other side of the wall from us. I'm sure just and eagerly anticipating the puppet show that's that's about to take place right next to where we're sitting right now. Okay, so Esperanza Pratt-Searles wants to know about the Ruth Asawa mural. Can you talk a little bit about that? Wow. Um, boy, that's a great question. Not many people know about this. Ruth Asawa came by, I, I think, for our 25th, maybe. The, the, can, you, well, can you mention who Ruth Asawa is? Ruth Asawa is one of our best-known artists in the Bay Area. Um, she was a sculptor, and she invited kids to join her in creating a huge sculpted mural in various pieces. And the medium she used was kind of a cookie dough sort of thing, so it was three-dimensional. And we have it in pieces in storage. And years and years ago, I contacted, when she was still alive, I contacted the family to find out how we could maybe put some covering coating on it so that we could then display it. And it was prohibitively expensive at the time. But um, I would love nothing more than to, it, it's just lovely. And it shows all different aspects of children's fairyland, all of our icons. And she made it with the kids. It's absolutely brilliant. And I would love nothing more than to see that restored. 
I don't think we're going to be able to get to these last couple of questions, but because I wanted to make sure that I gave you time and space to, if you have any stories that you wanted to share. I know you brought a list of some some topics that you wanted to mention, so I want to make sure that you get your uh, topics covered here too. Was there anything else you wanted to add before this puppet show gets going? <laughs> I think the one thing I would want to say is the biggest surprise I had in coming here was the children's theater that's been going on for over 65 years. What I learned was it's not about kind of wanting to be a famous actor or performer. It's about building community. So when I came here, the kids were from 8 to 10 years old. And now that I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to, uh, to step down, these kids have now graduated college. And we're still in touch with many of them. They come back and act as ride operators in the summer and winter. And that has just been such a joy. Uh, you know, our mayor, Libby Schaff, is a former children's theater person here. What, do you know what she did? She was Cinderella and Raggedy Ann. <laughs> and it's just, it, it was a real eye-opener for me to see these friendships uh, build amongst these kids who are no longer kids. And just the value of theater for kids is, is something I just wanted to get out there. I just, I just love it. C.J. Hirschfield, you're going to be here for a couple more months, right? I am indeed. So hopefully uh, people listening to the show will come to Fairyland while CJ's still on charge and just check out what an incredible job you've done, uh, you know, bringing this place back up. It's really undergone a renaissance. The construction of the last couple years has, has wrapped up now, and it's just it's an incredible place for uh, children and adults, too, apparently. You know, we've got a lot of, a lot of fans out there who want to come here, even if they don't have kids. But, yeah, thanks again, Children's Fairyland. What an, what an iconic Oakland destination. Thank you very much, Liam. And the sound that you're hearing in the background is why we do what we do. Happy kids. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Folks, if you want to see a great picture of CJ wearing a crown, dressed like a queen, and standing next to a dragon, check out eastbayyesterday.com. I'm telling you, Daenerys Targaryen ain't got nothing on this lady. Also, I've posted a few of the vintage Fairyland shots that will soon be on display at the Oakland airport. Check it out. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Oh, but before we go, one last very important bit of business to attend to. I could not do this show without support from you, the listeners. So right now, I'm going to thank every single person that's supporting me on Patreon right now. From the bottom of my heart, I'm truly grateful for your donations and all the lovely messages you send me. Big shout out to the following individuals. Adam Rich. Alexa Finlay, Anirvan Chatterjee, Anita, April Glazer, Ari A, Becky Price, Bex Fortin, Bill Schwimmer, Bleacher Dave, Brandon Silverman, Brendan McKeon, Britta Gustafson, Carol Lita, Chris Arvin, Chris Cassidy, Claudia Valoria, Cole Goines, Corey Johns, Curtis Perry, that's my dentist, Sarus Faravar, David A. Epstein, Dervala Hanley, Emily Watkins, Emmerich Anklum, Eric Hyman, Eric Newman, Esperanza Searles, Francis Loden, Heidi DeVries, Isabel, Jacqueline Frost, Jay Mumford, Jeff Pollitt, Jill, Joanne Lee, Judy Myers, Julio Rios, Caitlin Forgash, Karen Martin, Kat, 
Ken Ichi, Kirsten Furman, Kevin Parachan, King Kaufman, Kristen Lindquist, Leila Hulsey, Lee, Leanne Randolph, Lena Blanco Ogden, Lisa Don Ramirez, Madeline E, Mailing J Garcia, Marie Jensen, Matt Leonard, Matt Midbow, Minerva, Norm Maurer, Peter Finch, Preston Ray, Rachel, Rachel Lark, Rachel Lee, Raina Terror, Rainus Cohen, Rick Karneski, Rick Paulus, Robert Bowditch, Robert Sodden, Roger Thomason, Ruth, Sarah Lynn, Scott Whitesey, Sean Gibson, Shannon Alper, Sherry Markwart, Shirley Liu, Stephanie, Stephen Smith, Tara Caldwell, Tim Millette Parks, Tracy Temmer, Trish Gorman, Will Newman, Will Schramm, and Zachary T. Honeycutt. Massive thanks to each and every one of you. You guys are the best. Okay, that's it for today. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.